0: Hello again my friends, thank you for joining me in another part where we discuss the Men in Black myth. We're going to be exploring further a few more cases of Men in Black interactions, as well as some of the ways that these interactions are very quickly complicated when you look slightly below the surface. I am Sarah from Weird Horizon, and thank you for joining me, I hope you enjoy. Hello my friends, and welcome back to another episode on the Men in Black myth we're going to be continuing our discussion today if you have not listened to the first part on the men in black myth don't worry too much you will kind of get caught up on this one so you can listen to them in isolation but they are part of a ongoing series so if that interests you and you're just checking in now have a little look back i've got another little part on men in black if that is something that you're into but let's crack on If you have listened to part one on the origin of the Men in Black myth, you will start to understand it as a framework of mythology which starts to crack a door on a bigger, more complicated and more nuanced picture than may appear at first glance. It is not as simple as good guy, bad guy, the persecuted ufologist and the shadowy government figures which pursue them, But if you haven't heard of the Men in Black, I will summarise the conspiracy theory very briefly for you now. As a member of the UFO community, or an unfortunate bystander, you come across a great breakthrough, or a fantastical experience that you must share with the world. You write it down, intending to share it with the network of friends and colleagues that you have come to know through your membership in this niche group or you take a little piece with you, knowing of the faint idea of the flying saucer and that you may have just had a brush with one. You turn your hand towards completing research into the great UFO question. What are they? Where do they come from? And what do they want? You feel that the government and military efforts may have failed in answering this great question but you feel that you finally have the answer, the key you wish to share with the world. The next morning, strange men appear at your home, dressed identically in black, eerily similar in appearance. They don't say anything overtly threatening, but they hold in their hands the letter in which you wrote your breakthrough, or that little piece of evidence that you gathered and kept safe. The story you tell your friends of this encounter will be brief, no concrete details. You're pretty sure that the men aren't government, although they showed you some kind of credentials. They didn't answer any of your questions, and they knew everything that you knew. As a result, you will publicly remove yourself from the UFO scene. You're visibly shaken, exhibiting symptoms of great stress and unease. You will never share your breakthrough, not even with your closest friends. You will shrink into obscurity. You will warn others against treading the path that you have taken. Answers are coming, you hint, but they may not be the answers anyone wants. So is the narrative of the Men in Black conspiracy theory. But there are immediate questions raised by this. Namely, who are the men... Who do they work for and what do they say to the UFOlogist or the unwitting bystander to scare them from the field entirely? Why did multiple people have this exact same experience in the early days of the UFO community? From this, you may also start to pick out aspects of the ways in which the men in black myth started to shape the UFO community while it was still in its infancy putting pressure on the kinds of stress cracks that would come to shatter the community into the shape we know it as today. There are dividing lines through the UFO community, and in many ways this myth helped to pressurize these distinctions between the people who are excited about potential UFO contact and between the people who feared what this kind of revelation would bring to them, to their personal life. If the men in black themselves represent an extraterrestrial contact, are we hurtling to a future we may not want? But similarly, if the men are government, why are they appearing to ufologists dressed as the boogeyman in the trappings of already established paranormal myth when surely military or government pressure would be enough to silence individuals if the truth they were stumbling upon truly was a secret that had the potential to endanger life. If they are something else, if there are layers above and below the institutions we know of, what are their reasons for operating in the shadows? And lastly, if this is simply just a story made up by the ufologists themselves, what could they possibly have to gain from it? But let us have a look today at some more men in black encounters, now that we are familiar with its most publicised case. Where did we leave Albert Bender after his encounter, once a nausea had passed and he could start to explain a little to his friends about what had happened to him? The sources don't interest me anymore, he says. I've lost all interest in them. This is an excerpt from a book on a subject by his friend called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Was that because, he says, you found out that they were too ordinary to be interesting or that what you discovered about them is painful for you to think about? The latter, says Albert Bender. This painful truth may be hinting at a controversial theory gaining traction in the UFO community, under the guise of science fiction, that of Richard Shaver and the Shaver mystery. Shaver's first publicized work in sci-fi publication Amazing Stories, titled I Remember Lemuria, may ring some bells in association with Hollow Earth, as Lemuria, in legend, is the kind of foil to Atlantis. Both legendary lost civilizations, believed by some, to still be existing inside our concave planet. But the Shaver mystery, as sketched out by Shaver, does not tell of a lost ancient interior civilization with all the vague themes of regaining some ancient wisdom or similar truth that we find in aspirational Hollow Earth fiction. The sinister interior beings overrun their noble brothers and in many ways completely overpower us. This theory that the UFOs may in fact be scouts from much closer to home than assumed is a popular fringe theory in the UFO community. But first contact with this kind of civilization would no doubt hasten in an uncomfortable future that it would be better to delay if not avoidable entirely. In many ways, it would be better not to know about them but Shaver himself claimed to have personal experience with the beings from inside the earth. Shaver's strange experiences began in his 20s when he was working in a factory, where, in his own words, a welding gun, by some freak of its coils, field attunements, came with the odd side effect of enabling Shaver to hear the thoughts of the men working around him. Incidentally, Shaver would be denied any official diagnosis for his psychiatric problems, which he did spend time in the hospital in attempts to manage. However, it was not long before this power, as he viewed it, grew in scope, and up to a point where one day Shaver received the telepathic record of a torture session conducted by malign entities in caverns deep within the earth. It was through this record that he managed to piece together a history of the interior civilization. They were an extremely advanced race who were forced to abandon the Earth, leaving behind only a handful of their offspring there, along with some remnants of their advanced technology. Inside the Earth consists a constant struggle between the survivors, grouped into two races, the Terros and the Deros, The Teros being noble and just, the Deros being corrupt and degenerate. It was the Deros, he said, who occasionally kidnapped surface dwellers and submitted them to the torture that Shaver was psychic witness to. The Deros would project their perverted thoughts into the minds of those receptive on the surface, being responsible for all of the ill-doings of the planet. Upon its publication, Shaver was flooded with letters of support from others who had heard the same cruel voices in their head and were said to have had encounters with these ancient civilizations inside the hollow earth via secret stairs, elevators, and cave systems. It was, in his words, a great truth covered up of a fundamental struggle between good and evil the two paths that an advanced civilization may take. It was a popular story and only gaining traction in UFO circles as an answer to one of these great questions we were talking about namely, who the UFOs were, this ancient civilization remnant, and what they wanted namely, our bodies for our meat and for experimentation purposes. It was hardly a comforting story, but one that rested on familiar themes. Good versus evil, pure versus degenerate, etc. It's set up in opposition to the creatures that plague us, the idea of an innate moral civilization in an era when this idea was relegated to the realms of fantasy. The answer to the UFO question being the Shaver mystery or something like it would certainly chill all those who sought a connection with a benevolent Indian race. But the link between UFO and Darrow's was underlined with issue after issue from the very advent of the first UFO accounts. It was suggested that Shaver-designed crafts had graced the covers of these publications even before Kenneth Arnold coined the term flying saucer. But as Gray Barker points out in his book on the subject, they knew too much about flying saucers. If what Shaver says is true, why hasn't somebody found the caves and broken the story to the press? No matter whether there is truth to this Shaver mystery, there would be a utility, undoubtedly, in spreading this kind of UFO message if you wish to weaken the UFO community. One that encourages the inquiring mind to stay well away, that contact or knowledge can only bring pain or the burden of truth has the inevitable side effect of weakening the motivation of a burgeoning niche culture. And the behavior of those impacted by men in black visitations and descriptions of the men in black visitations themselves only seemed to support this message. They were scared away by a force seemingly not governmental, not military, and chased from their field entirely, left deflated and rudderless. Whatever scared them caused them to cut the close ties that they had formed with the community as a whole, often taking with them the publications which had helped to unite and galvanise the fledgling movement. All the while, the spectre of the Men in Black served as an implacable figure of menace, appearing to different people under different guises, serving as a kind of blank slate onto which to project their fears and insecurities, serving, as mentioned, the same kinds of themes and the same kinds of needs as pre-established paranormal myth. But if it is, as has been suggested, a subtle instrument of control, its methods are much more abstract than they appear at first or even second glance. Let's check in with another early influence on the scene through his writings, Ray Palmer, with The Coming of the Saucers*, written with arguably the father of the flying saucer, Kenneth Arnold. It told how Palmer set Arnold, famous for coining the term, to Tacoma, Washington, to check up on the story of Harold A. Dahl and Fred L. Chrisman, two harbour patrolmen. They told this tale. Dahl was patrolling in his boat near Maury Island when he and his crew saw six donut-shaped objects in the sky, dotted with portholes and a strange circular window in the donut hole, as it were, Five of the objects encircled the sixth, and this sixth craft appeared to be in distress. Suddenly, there is a muffled explosion, and a shower of molten metal residue falls around Dahl's boat, injuring his son, killing his dog, and causing not inconsiderable collateral damage. The five remaining craft fly away at speed, while Dahl collects some of the metal residue from the explosion. This is when Arnold becomes entangled with the tale. Arnold summoned two army intelligence officers to assist him in investigating the case, a Captain William L. Davidson and a Lieutenant Frank M. Brown. They arrived to help question all those involved, taking with them the fragments collected by Dahl and Chrisman. Now Arnold had reason to believe that one of the officers was in reality working in counter-espionage and was only posing as a second lieutenant. But before he could see how this would play out in their investigations, both of the men assisting Arnold were killed when their plane crashed leaving Tacoma. It was suspected that the plane was sabotaged. What's more, both Dahl and Chrisman also disappeared mysteriously after the investigation, but in Dahl's case, not before he had a visitation from a man who wore a black suit. They drove to breakfast together, and as soon as they were seated, the man in the suit began recounting to Dahl the events of the previous day, in such detail as if he were there. All this detail served as proof to Dahl that the man had the full picture about the incident and that Dahl himself only had a partial glimpse into what had happened. He left him with some advice. If Dahl loved his family and didn't want anything bad to happen, he would not discuss the experience with anyone. It was only reluctantly that he began to share his story. Unlike Albert Bender, Dahl was not a UFO researcher or a ufologist on the brink of a major breakthrough. He was not seeking UFO when they crossed paths with him, yet his experience and aftermath is much the same as Bender's. No doubt there are many reasons for someone to come into contact with a man in a suit, but particularly in Dahl's case, what was it that made this man in a suit distinct from all the others he'd have met as he told his story? As mentioned, this man seemed to know everything about the incident. He seemed to know more than Dahl himself did. He seemed to have a more than natural knowledge of the incident in general. The famous Project Saucer Report of April 27, 1949, a resume of investigations by the Air Material Command at Wright Field, contained an account of this. Incident later named the Maury Island Affair. Project Saucer, later renamed Project Sign, aimed to collect, evaluate, and distribute within the government all information related to UFO sightings on the premise that they may represent a national security concern. Interestingly, Project Saucer or Project Sign was followed by Project Grudge. When it was made clear that the threat in the UFO community came less from a potentially very foreign threat, an extraterrestrial threat, and more that the reports they spoke of could be used by foreign parties to induce panic and hysteria in the public. As a narrative or memetic device, they had a certain exploitable nature that a military power could turn to their advantage. To be clear, it would be in the US's best interest to fully explore this avenue in a post-World War II Cold War climate, before someone else did. To add another complicated turn to an already complicated story, Chrisman, the other witness to the maury Island incident, believed to have disappeared after his involvement in the case, has been identified as somewhat of a locus around which conspiracy theories Form, Fred Christman having a long and decorated history with the Army Air Force already stands in a complicated position when we attempt to separate the military myth making from the civilian and then separate all of that from the truth. This case already contains multiple parties with conflicting interests. As you can see things start to get very complicated very quickly. A few years before the account was published by Project Saucer, Chrisman, under a pseudonym, came out of support of Richard Shaver in Amazing Stories, with his eyewitness account of baffling, mysterious underground creatures in a Burmese cave during his time in World War II. It would follow, then, that eyes were drawn to the Maury incident in its entirety. But in an interview with Fate magazine on the subject, Chrisman had this to say, Why, if we were such blackguards and deliberately caused the death of two Air Force pilots and the loss of our $150,000 airplane, did not the government or some agency there attempt to seek justice through the courts of the state and federal governments? It seems as though then, if it was a dangerous hoax claiming lives and causing huge damage, It seemingly had no punishment and resulted in the military's expense and shame. It is as though the more you look at it, the less sense any of this makes. But this pattern would only continue. With the more UFO sightings came more brushes with men in black, appearing often at the point the individual was on the brink of discovery or just at the point they were asked to share some crucial truth with the world. They serve to dissuade them. They are said to be preternaturally well-versed in the individual's lives, almost to the point of omniscience. By the mid-1960s, they often identified themselves as members of the Air Force or some other form of military intelligence personnel. By 1967, a correspondence from the Pentagon to all intelligence command centers notifies them to keep an eye out for men in black impersonating government agents with the aim of intimidating UFO researchers. Yet, the majority of investigators felt that the men in black participated in a conspiracy of silence orchestrated not by fascist political groups, but by the United States Air Force. Let's check back in with Gray Barker in They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. There exist forces or agencies which would prevent us from finding out whether or not there are such green men, or bug-eyed monsters, or saucers with things in them. I have a feeling that someday there will come a slow knocking at my own door. They will be at your door too, unless we all get wise and find out who the three men really are. There remain to this day a lot of questions around Barker's work, how far he believed what he wrote, whether he embellished sequences of events or bent them to fit an established narrative. But if anything, that means they serve our arguments today even more. For better or worse, the Men in Black narrative has become a major part of UFO lore, and Barker introduced it to the community. It still speaks to the same kinds of themes and anxieties that it did 75 years ago. What's more, one man can be termed myth-maker, as Barker often is, but it takes a community to maintain and sustain a myth. Gray's myth-making allied with the lived experience of many ufologists, and the kind of behaviors it talks about followed the community up to the present day. Let's fast forward a little bit to the early 90s and the six issue run of the comic that spawned the media franchise of the same name, The Men in Black. The author of the 1990 air cell comic, Lowell Cunningham, commented that he was inspired to create the series after seeing a mysterious black van parked on the side of the road and a friend introducing him to the idea of the government, Men in Black. Everyone gets their one big idea according to Cunningham, and this was his, recognising the potential in this still relatively fringe theory for a widespread appeal. True enough, the rights to the concept, then in mostly black and white form and not widely published, were acquired by Marvel, and the movie catapulted the concept into public consciousness. Cunningham gives a little more detail on this in his interview with the New York Times around the release of the first movie in 1997. Men in black have been talked about in the UFO circles for decades, he says. It excited me. It caught my attention. But whereas the movies are a light-hearted, buddy cop-style reimagining of the kind of conspiracy theories made popular by shows like the X-Files, the comics take a decidedly more grim tone. Jay's initiation into Men in Black, for example, is not by choice. Simply wakes up in a black car and is given this chance. If you really don't want to come along, I'll zap you and leave you here. This zap is a reference to the neuralizer, As explained again in a New York Times interview, In both the comic and the movies, the Neuralizer explains why there has been no hard evidence or credible eyewitness accounts of alien encounters or abductions. The Men in Black erase the evidence, even as they destroyed, with space-age weapons confiscated from the aliens themselves, the Visitors'. The neuralizer has the effect of wiping the memory of anyone it's pointed at, at which point a more credible or acceptable version of the truth can be fed to the victim. In an issue from the first three-issue run, when a summoned demon completely consumes a young boy, the mother is neuralized and fed a story that his disappearance is due to a freak hurricane. They leave as she sobs in realisation that her child is gone. A friend of mine, Dennis Matheson, was interested in that folklore, he said, and I was taken with the whole idea of these powerful men who show up and keep the peace. I shaped the men in black to be active agents out there responding to threats, cleaning them up if they've already occurred. They described themselves as the thin black line between reality and chaos. Much of this darker tone was jettisoned from the film adaptations, but a few key concepts made it to the big screen. The core concept of Cunningham's Men in Black, best illustrated with some choice quotes from the comic, says Kay, We're not the system, we're over it, above it, beyond it. We are them, we are they, we are the men in black. The men in black are a myth, a legend, a lie. Not many people would argue that the series had faltered a little in recent years. Attempts to modernize it with Men in Black International have failed to bring a return on investment. For many, the biggest explanation is simple, that the franchise itself is dated. It failed to adapt its approach and tone to a changing world. A lot has happened in the world since 1997 to change the relationship between the public and the idea of agencies above and beyond the system. Much of International rides on reminding the audience of the first movie, where the idea of the government training elite operatives for a secret mission, where they would have access to global surveillance, advanced weaponry, and memory-altering technology, was an escapist fantasy. Needless to say, but these ideas don't quite have the same tone in the 2020s that they did in the 1990s. What with, as we've mentioned, more and more information coming to light about the reality of the government's interference with the UFO community and participation in its myths and evolution. So it may be then to study the men in black in isolation is to purposely ignore most of the picture in favor of focusing on an arbitrary detail. The idea of the organization known as the Men in Black simplifies a subject that deserves to be explored in its full and complicated glory. To say the Men in Black simply served as last guardians against the truth of the UFO conspiracy does two things. It implies that the US government and UFOlogists are in general agreement about what they know, and that this knowledge, for whatever reason, is forbidden to the general population. It follows then that a ufologist getting access to this information has to be neutralized. There is an agreed-upon truth. Furthermore, the very fact that these accounts have reached the general population means that this effort of containment has failed, and for whatever reason, the government is fine with that fact. But of course, the reality of the matter is, As much as we know today, that the UFO truth, the nugget of confirmation around which the disclosure movement is built upon, is not a discrete form as we know it, not an objective fact that exists in isolation. More, the US government has, in a myriad of complicated ways, inserted themselves into the evolving UFO narrative, incorporating elements back into the system in a distorted manner, as part of a massive disinformation campaign. Like a jagged rash no longer has a distinct edge around which we can draw a boundary between it and the truth it was designed to protect. This is all to raise a bigger question, one that we will explore further in some more episodes. Rather than covering up the existence of aliens... Could it be that the real conspiracy has been persuading us to believe in them? We will continue this with an episode on a famous case of US government military intervention in the UFO narrative with the case of Richard Doty and Paul Benowitz. Thank you for joining me for another episode. I am Sarah from Weird Horizon. If you enjoyed this one, we're going to be continuing deep diving into this topic next week. If you would like to interact with me in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and you can find me on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast. Can't wait to carry on. This is the kind of rabbit hole that I am absolutely here for. (laughs) See you soon. Bye.